0: Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather expensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody,
1: and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortion.
0: On January sixth of twenty twenty-one, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy. You're stuck, QAnon. It's real.
1: <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is the Enemies List. Joining me today on the Enemies List are two journalists who are brilliant. Observers and deep divers into the miasma, the, the the horror, the 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 vagaries, the bizarre world of Trump and Trumpism, and they have written a book called "Find Me the Votes." It is a story about the January 6th trial that is being conducted in Georgia by Fannie Willis. My guests today are the great Michael Izakoff and Daniel Clydman, both of whom have jumped into a subject that is going to make a a, a very consequential difference. In where this election and where this country goes, and that is the January 6th trial being conducted by Fannie Willis in the great state of Georgia. So, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the enemies list. I want to jump right in. Before we talk about Fannie Willis herself, tell our audience why the January 6th case that she's prosecuting against Trump is so consequential in in, in, in terms of what happens in this election.
2: I would say uh, it is, in some ways, the most significant of all the cases. By the way, and I wouldn't call it a January 6th case. It's That's much broader That's a good than January Six. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. the story of the pressure campaign by Trump and his allies that began immediately after the election. In fact, you could probably trace it to before the election when they were making contingency plans if they didn't come out on top to challenge the results. Um, and it goes all through past January 6th. In fact, you know, one of the final acts of the racketeering conspiracy indictment takes place January 7th, <laughs> and it's the raid on Coffee County, this rural mm-hmm. county in Georgia, where where the uh, Trump operatives went down to like uh, steal the uh, election software um, to prove their case that Venezuelan socialists had planted secret <laughs> algorithms uh, to flip votes from uh, Donald Trump to Joe Biden. But, you know, Look, I mean, what we say is that Georgia was ground zero for Mm -hmm. everything that happened that unfolded in the post-election saga. It was the place where Trump's pressure campaign was most furious, most intense um, and um, and 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 most consequential and. You know, adding one more bit, and we've got a lot of new details about what took place during that pressure campaign. And when you put it under the microscope, as we ended up saying, it was both um, more sinister and crazier than anybody imagined. And it wasn't done by Donald Trump alone. He had an army of Confederates and it's the Georgia case. Only Fannie Willis has indicted this as a conspiracy, as the racketeering conspiracy that um, it is alleged it was. Jack Smith has just indicted Donald Trump alone as the sole defendant. Trump couldn't do what he did if, you know, without sure, this sure. army of co-conspirators.
0: Just to close the loop on this, Rick, I mean, it is it is the place where you have the widest scope of alleged criminality. Right. As Mike was just saying, the Jack Smith case is very narrow. That's essentially about the obstruction of a of a, of an official proceeding. This you've got the original sin, which was the phone call uh, I need 11, uh, from Trump votes, uh, to right. Brad Raffsenberger, uh, but you've also got, you know, lying to state officials, you've got uh, felony counts related to the threats. You've got the fake elector uh, scheme and you've got coffee County. So just in terms of the skullduggery that was taking to, that was taking place uh, more, more in Georgia than anywhere else.
1: So let me, let me bifurcate the, what you said, Michael, a second ago. Thank you, Darren. Um, you said that, you know, it's both insane and more, criminal and dark than people have yet to understand. Let's go to the to, to the dark and the criminal side of it first because this really was an integrated plan led by this clack of lawyers around Trump. Uh, but there were also like outliers of it that were like darker and scarier and more basically Rudy taking point on intimidating election workers uh publicly saying they were stealing votes, threatening their lives essentially. Talk to us a little bit about how the criminal part of this came together from election day or a little before election day, culminating out into the actions that happened in Georgia.
2: So let me take you through from right after the election, Don jr flies down to Atlanta and um, goes to the Republican party headquarters in Buckhead and series of meetings. He's demanding that everybody in the Georgia Republican party get behind um, his father's challenge to the election, or or his father will tank the two Republican senators mm-hmm. running in the runoff, uh, Kelly Leffler right. and David right. Perdue. Uh, it was a sort of brazen brazen extortionist uh, assertion by Don Jr. Junior. And it totally spooks everybody there. We have David Schaefer, the um, chairman of the Republican Party, saying at that point we just wanted to make sure we we kept Donald. Trump happy because we didn't want him mad at us when we had this upcoming ru- runoff. So what happens? By the end of that week, Purdue and Leffler put out a statement calling for R- Brad Raffensberger, the mm-hmm. Secretary of State, to resign immediately because the vote totals showed that Biden was ahead <laughs> of Trump and therefore there must have been fraud. Right after that statement, right after that statement, the threats to raffensperger right. are unleashed right. and you know we have the texts that trisha raffensperger his wife got that night and they are hair raising we quote from them for the first time uh in uh in find me the votes and they are you know Awful ugly threats, sexualized threats, all you know, kill you, hang you, right. all that kind of stuff. And uh and 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 it continues. The Proud Boys show up at Raffenberger's house. You know, MAGA warriors uh harass their daughter-in-law and break into our house. On it goes. That's that was the opening part of this sinister part of the equation. And Rick, it it is absolutely
0: pervasive. Uh in, in the aftermath of the election for people who were in any way involved in the, in, in the election. And as Mike points out, it is not just the principals. It is not just the office holders or the election administrators. It is their families. Of course. We write about someone named Ralph Jones, who was an election administrator uh, in, in Fulton County. Um, and he is getting these horrific threats. He's, he's African-American. You're going to be lynched. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna drag you through the city of Atlanta by by the by our pickup truck but the messages are coming in to his children they're coming into his LinkedIn his Facebook everywhere he is but they are coming into his children's Facebook pages you can't imagine uh, the sort of human toll Part of the reason we did this book because in Georgia more than anywhere else the people were, Average people, average citizens, Georgians who are doing their civic duty to help people vote freely are the targets of these horrible threats that just are are relentless um, and violent and sexualized. And it's a really important part of the story because this climate has not changed. And it is. We saw how easy it was to stir it up in Georgia in 2020. It can, I think, will happen again.
1: You know That's something that any prominent person who's opposed Trump has had some kind of encounter with that kind of behavior. But it seems in this case that uh, as an outside observer and certainly what you guys seem to re- be reporting, that it was much more vivid and graphic and, and directed because I think – I don't know about your how, how deep your reporting has gone in on this. I think Trump really expected that Raffensberger and Kemp were going to put their thumb on the scale here, right? And that's really what led these lawyers to keep like ratcheting the pressure up and up and up. And there's always two sides in the Trump universe. There's the public side, and then there's all that just under the surface, proud boy, Bannonite, weird, threatening, subsurface behavior.
2: we have, we have a chapter uh, chapter 8 and it's the happens to be the chapter that you know where we dissect the phone call and how the tape of the phone call came about uh, that's all new fresh reporting um in this book but you know it starts with why georgia why why was trump so obsessed with georgia and you know there's really two explanations i mean you know a you know it was the state with the where the where the vote where the margin was the tightest also you know he had, you know, he looked at the Georgia officialdom and it was all Republicans, a Republican legislature, Republican governor, Republican attorney general, Republican secretary of state. Um, and he figures, you know, they got to do my bidding. He had endorsed Kemp and was just furious that Kemp was not um, carrying his water for this election. I mean, he looked at it almost as a personal betrayal on his part, uh, that these Republican office holders were not doing what he viewed as their civic duty, which was to get him elected, not to accurately count the votes <laughs> in Georgia. So, you know, that was a, a, a big part of it. Uh, he And also, uh, and we say this, it was sort of like a a domestic political version of the old Cold War domino uh, theory, if they could just get one state, just get one state to flip, that could create the momentum for these other dominoes to fall, because Georgia wouldn't have done it. It, it, it wouldn't have changed the ultimate outcome itself, but They figured as they were getting closer to January 6th, the clock was ticking. When is the phone call with Raffensperger? January 2nd. They just needed one more. They needed one win somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they figured Georgia was the best bet. But Raffensperger, Carr, Kemp, they all thwarted Trump's efforts. It was a Republican stone wall of resistance to Trump in Georgia. So let me ask you guys a
1: little bit about Fannie Willis as the prosecutor here. We're going to have to get into the case uh, or, or the story that has developed over the last you know week or so before this podcast airs, where she's got some controversy now around her in this case. Talk to us about who she is as a prosecutor and why she um, has, has put together what looked like on paper to be a very sweeping RICO case against these people.
0: She's an extraordinarily uh, gifted uh, prosecutor. Um, when she was uh, doing murder trials and, and gang trials in Fulton County, the young assistant DAs were instructed uh, to go watch her trials and go learn from her because she was a whirlwind in, in, the, in the courthouse. And one of these trial lawyers who had the ability to, uh, to, to sense the room, to sense the jury, she was dramatic and had flair when she needed to. She had a soft touch uh, when that was required. Uh, She could do it all. She's a preparation freak. Uh, There was was never a moment where she was uh, surprised because she had done the work. Um, And she was absolutely devoted uh, to to winning these cases, fiercely uh, competitive. So you start with just those talents. Then the kinds of cases that she brought that prepared her For this Trump case, she was the lead trial lawyer uh, in uh, the Atlanta public schools case. This was the cheating school cheating scandal. They brought that as a RICO case and in the end convicted Uh, you know, more than a dozen teachers uh, and administrators. It was a controversial case, and she does not shy away from controversy because in in Atlanta, which is a majority black city, every single uh, one of these defendants was a person of color. Fonnie Willis charged ahead. She believed that these children uh, were were the victims and that they were all uh, black and people of color themselves. And she said their rights needed to be uh, vindicated here, so uh, she is is a force of nature. Uh, that is how many of the people we interviewed describe her. And look, uh, as a trial lawyer and someone with uh, personal qualities, um, you know, she, she can also carry herself with a touch of, of arrogance um, and and certitude. It's a little bit like the you know the sort of fighter jock mentality that some trial lawyers have. And I think, you know, that in, in some small part may also explain how she got into this situation.
1: So tell us a little bit about, so the audience has an understanding of this, uh, because the, the Trump world description of it is this lurid soap opera of, of she must be immediately disqualified. Tell us what's going on with how her personal life and the professional side have intersected, and what do you think that's going to do the, to the coming trial?
2: Look, no question um, she have a lapse in judgment here by having this relationship with Nathan Wade uh, who she hired as the special prosecutor in the case. And not the first mis- you know lapse in judgment she's had. I mean she there was a a, a famous one uh, a, a year or so ago when she agreed to sponsor a fundraiser for a friend who was running against one of our targets Burt Jones one of the f- alleged fake electors and uh, the, the judge her out for that, disqualified her from prosecuting Burt Jones and said this was a what are you thinking moment. I think we can say that as well about the relationship with uh, Nathan Wade. But that said, I got to say, this has, I think, been, has been way overblown. When you get to legally consequences, I mean, look, we're going to have, you know, she uh, filed her first response, you know, just a few days ago. And, um, the response is, yes, she had the relationship according to her and, and, she, affidavit from nathan wade the uh, special prosecutor she hired the relationship didn't begin until after he was hired and as far as these you know vacations they went on they split costs you factor in that and unless something emerges to contradict that what are we talking about here an inter-office romance between two single professionals in their 50s and you know There's this hearing coming up before Judge McAfee um, in which if he asks the question straight out of Ashley Merchant, the lawyer for Michael Roman, who filed the original motion about this, saying she would disqualified, please explain how the relationship between Fonnie Willis and um, uh, Nathan Wade prejudiced your client. Um, I have no idea what she'd say because there's absolutely no evidence right, he it, did. His constitutional rights were not denied. There was no evidence of prejudice in the development of the case. You know, the relationship had nothing to uh, do yeah, the, with the, the merits or lack thereof of the case.
0: There has to be evidence that the prosecution was biased uh, in in some way, and that there was a not a an appearance of a conflict of interest, but under Georgia law, it has to be an actual conflict of interest. Now, that would be if Fannie Willis, for example, had a relationship with the judge, or had a relationship with a, a defense witness, or 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 a, or a police officer in the case, or if she, let's say, she had hired Nathan Wade and said, you know, I'm going to pay you X amount to come onto the case, but I will pay you twice as much if you get a conviction a kind of a contingency fee arrangement so that they would have a financial stake in the outcome. That's not what we're talking about here at all.
1: Uh, You can count on the MAGA slash Fox world to always seek out any weak spot in anybody's world and, and exploit it ruthlessly. So Michael, what you're, what you're, I think what you're talking about is very much what we're seeing. It's very on point is that they've blown this up into a giant conspiracy now. And it's, we should be accustomed to this now, but, but people still are acting shocked that the Republicans are, Trying to blow something like this into a separate crisis of its own. There are now Republicans starting to bring pressure on Brian Kemp again, trying to get her taken off the case. Do you think Kemp is going to hold firm? I, I, I sense that he's a little less stalwart than he was back in 2021
2: probably a little bit because he's probably looking at the poll numbers which do show Trump ahead in Georgia in a in in a race against Biden this fall but i'd be surprised if he you know puts his thumb on the scale and forces some first of all i mean They can launch investigations in the legislature. But, you know, Judge McAfee is going to be the decider here as to whether, you know, this motion gets granted or, you know, whether to have an evidentiary hearing about the private life of the the district attorney. I can't imagine he's going to want to do that. And if he ultimately rejects the motion uh, and doesn't disqualify, her, which I think he's likely to do. Then I think this gets tamped down uh, considerably. Now, certainly, Republicans, the MAGA Republicans in the legislature, are going to continue to make noise and do that. But I don't see Kemp or Chris Carr weighing in. I would think that
0: Brian Kemp actually wants to see uh, Donald Trump uh, go on trial um, in in Georgia because uh, if if she's expelled, so, so I, I'm not, if, not so hold sure. On, hold on, <laughs> let me let me make the case here, and this is just uh, if. if if, if first of all, Fannie Willis is disqualified, her whole team is disqualified. And under Georgia law, the entire office is disqualified, which in all likelihood means that this case um, falls apart. I'm not sure that they're going to actually be able to try it at all. And, you know, Brian Kemp, by all accounts, is interested in a, in a Senate run in, in, in 2028. I, I would think he would like to see uh you know maga republicanism go down in georgia i think a trial of of donald trump and a conviction of donald trump in in georgia uh, is going to help that cause so if he's thinking purely politically uh you know i'm not sure that he wants to see uh fani willis thrown off this case
1: if trump's people play out true to form they will do everything they can to 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 get that disqualification in play even if they violate the law doing it so let me ask you this: Going back to more of, the, of her prosecution of the case so far, I think a lot of people in MAGA world thought there would be this sort of omerta, like Rudy has kept the sort of general code of, of silence about Trump. But she managed to flip quite a number of these people um, in the course of this, in part because Trump basically said, "I'll cover your legal fees," and then didn't. Which one of those people do you think so far is the most consequential? Uh, and, and how much more do you think? she could expect to get uh, in terms of of flipping more of the witnesses and the co-conspirators
2: in the case. So she's got four cooperating defendants. Right. Sidney Powell, uh, Kenneth Cheeseborough, who was the architect of the uh, fake elector scheme, the bail bondsman whose name keeps... Um, Scott Hall. Scott Hall. Scott Hall. Scott Hall. And Jenna Ellis. Scott Hall shows up a lot of
1: places in this
2: case. Yes, he yes, yes, he does. Fascinating <laughs> character. Brother-in-law of Dave Bossy, by the way, who you may remember. <laughs> yes, of from, course. <laughs> yeah. He's a bail bondsman who is like completely obsessed in MAGA world and was and, and actually was part Part of that Coffee County raid on January seventh, we don't know exactly uh, what uh, there. There's no public proffer here. Um, She did put all these people under uh, for videotaped interviews uh, before they signed the uh, their guilty pleas, uh, and we haven't seen, so we don't know exactly. I would think both both Cheeseborough as the architect of the um, uh, of the fake elector scheme I think is pretty significant to put in you know what was going through their heads and how they were really using that not because they needed some contingency for a, a lawsuit because they needed to create this 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 semblance of a dispute, semblance of their arrival electors so they could jam Pence to reject the Biden electors and throw it open to the House or send it back to state legislatures. That that was what the game plan and and that's in some of the memos. If you read the memos closely, you see that's what it was really uh, about. And Powell, of course, I mean, you know, as we report in the book, you know, Powell was probably the most extreme in proposing like extra legal methods I mean we talked about how she like was plotting criminal break-ins at election offices around the country right and um,
1: walk us through that a little bit I don't think people know that story.
2: Yeah, yeah. It is an incredible story. We came across it. This is just a week or so after the election. I think Danny referred to it before. But, you know, she says, "Okay, we got to get the evidence of the secret algorithms that uh, Hugo Chavez planted in the Dominion voting machines. So we need to get access to those machines, right? We need to get them. Let's get our hands on those machines. Let's break into election offices and seize the software. And oh, by the way, that would be illegal. But we'll have these hunting licenses, preemptive presidential Pardons. So we trace how that actually led to the real raid in Coffee County. Um, and, you know, it's a follow the dots kind of thing. But, you know, when you see the dots connected, as we try to do in this book, um, you, you know, the uh, scales fall from your eyes. That
0: is <laughs> that's amazing. Jenna Ellis is someone to keep uh, to keep an eye on because if you watched her her uh, public plea in, in the courtroom, she cried. I mean I, I saw evidence of actual contrition um, with Jenna Ellis, whereas you know Sidney Powell um, certainly knows a lot, but you know she has been out there uh, since her plea, continuing with some of these conspiracy theories about 2020. I get the sense that um, that Jenna Ellis. Uh, has, you know, had a kind of come to Jesus moment uh, through that process and could be a pretty damning witness.
2: And just one other uh, point to make here is the fact that she got these four uh, defendants to plead guilty is a vindication of the whole RICO strategy she used. That's why you use RICO. You threaten people with serious criminal penalties and, you know, you get the come to Jesus moments where they agree to flip. And in all likelihood, there, w- there will be more. And, and worth pointing out that Jack Smith has no cooperating witnesses uh, that we know about, I mean, he may in his back pocket, but you know, we'll see right now. She's the only one that's gotten uh, guilty pleas. Right. It's the, it's,
1: uh, that's the, always the magic of Rico, that whole section 848 thing of continuing criminal enterprises and, and the threat of, of people down the chain, rolling it up. So it is interesting that she's been the one who, uh, and I heard an argument that Jack Smith didn't do that in part because it would have taken so much longer on the case to build the case out. Uh, of the things he's pursuing, and he's under the gun because at some point Merrick Garland, the theory of, the, of it is, will say, "Okay, time's up. We gotta, we gotta." He's the nominee now, and you know your clock is out. But it is interesting that she's one of the few people who's actually managed to, to break people off. And I've got to wonder how how my old friend Rudy is feeling right now. Uh, you know, broke, bankrupt. Uh, the, one of the largest defamation judgments for a private individual in the country in ages. And and the whole thing seems to have rounded up to, I don't think she, there's much she can offer him at this point, but that clearly none of these people are coming out of this thing with any support from Trump world. It, that, then that seems to me like that was a huge failing on Trump's part. He could have kept that omerta going if he had just said to people, eh, you know, I'll take care of you on the back end
0: rudy had to had to beg for money from from Trump. i think he did hold one fundraiser but i mean the the, the legal bills that rudy must have racked up and now the judgment against him i mean trump, you know obviously trump has his own problems with ju- with the uh, money judgments against him so he, there may be less money to actually bail out rudy with
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah but rick also remember you know in the federal cases trump could say hey keep quiet I'll win the election. I'll pardon you. He can't do that in Georgia. In fact, you can't get a pardon in Georgia at all until you've completed, served your sentence. And then you have to wait five years five years after completing your sentence, mm-hmm. then you can apply to a pardon and parole board. So <laughs> he can't, there's no pardon in the offing in Georgia. Another case, another reason why the Georgia case is so important.
1: Don't think that the Georgia legislature won't change that law. If Trump asked them to, but let's not give them any bad ideas <laughs> all right. in all this. I have one more question about like Trump's reaction to Fannie Willis has been extremely bad and dark. Is it, that she's a woman, is that she's African-American. He he seems to have had a, a reaction on her that is really nasty, really, really, truly ugly. Or is it just a threat of the scope of the case against him?
0: Well, my guess is, it, it is it, it's a combination. As you point out, I mean, he, he called her a racist. He called her a radical. He called her a, a, called her a Mark, Marxist. He said without a shred of evidence that she – uh, you know, was having an affair with a gangbanger uh, of some kind, <laughs> with a gangbanger whom she was 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 prosecuting. I mean, look, this is Trump. Um, he he goes for uh, the jugular. Um, you know, interestingly, and we say this in the in the epilogue of of our of our book. You know, Fonnie Willis uh, punches back. There may be you know some sense in which he he will have a g- kind of grudging admiration for her because she doesn't just take it. I mean, there's. Some people will remember that after the indictment, she started getting uh, letters from Jim Jordan, whose committee was was investigating her. And the letters in response were pretty extraordinary. You know, allow me to give you a t- tutorial on conspiracy law. Right. And, and then she suggested <laughs> that uh, he buy the tome on the Georgia conspiracy statute written by John Floyd, who is a member of her team and one of the most respected uh, really, experts on conspiracy law, and then she said, uh, "For the uh, for non uh, for, for non bar members, it's two hundred and fifty dollars, whatever." Well, that was a dig at at at, uh, at at Jim Jordan, who is a lawyer but
1: who never passed the bar, right?
0: So, right, you know,
1: aye, aye, aye. well, this is going to be a fascinating case to watch. And this book, folks, it's "Find Me the Votes": A Hard-Charging Georgia Prosecutor, a Rogue President and The Plot to Steal an American Election. Michael Izakoff, Daniel Clydman, thank you so much for coming on The Enemies List today. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to uh, to, to watching this case unfold and to, and to watching you guys continue to give it some of the best analysis out there. Thanks again for coming on.
0: Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Thank
1: you.